listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. So for the last few weekends, we've had a detour uh, as we've gone through the season of Advent and the season of Christmas. By the way, we're still in the season of Christmas. Christmas is 12 days long. This is the ninth day of Christmas. Thank God I don't see Bobby Kilgore because it is nine ladies dancing. And if you know, you know. Um, but don't put up your Christmas tree yet. It's only the ninth day of Christmas. There's 12. Uh, so we're still in the Christmas season, but it is the first weekend of a brand new year. And so what we're going to do is pick up our series that we began in the fall, that we kind of split off from. Back in September, we began a series in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. I consider the Sermon on the Mount to be Jesus' most complete, most important sermon in the New Testament. What is he doing? He's giving us his vision. He's giving us his manifesto. This is what human life can look like, should look like, one day will look like when all is made well, when his kingdom is consummated under his reign. But, uh, but that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. In September, we began looking at the opening section. If we see the Sermon on the Mount as the constitution of God's kingdom, the opening section is his preamble, which are the Beatitudes. And so in September, October, and I think a little bit into November, we took each one of those weekends one by one, and we looked at each of the eight Beatitudes, verse by verse, one verse at a time, one Beatitude at a time. Um, This morning, we're going to pick up where we left off, but we're also going to pick up the pace a little bit. Rather than looking at the Sermon on the Mount one verse at a time, which would take the remainder of our natural lives, uh, we're going to look at it one passage at a time. And the passage that we left off with that we're going to look at this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verses uh, 13 through 16. Most scholars, many scholars, would view this passage as sort of like the linchpin of the entire sermon. Or you might say it's the through line that weaves all of it together. It's the thematic center of the Sermon on the Mount. So let's look at Matthew chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 13. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, I want to approach this passage by asking a series of questions that are going to kind of help frame the message. Here's the first big question we need to ask is, who is Jesus speaking to? When he announces you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world, to whom is Jesus addressing these remarks? And this is where we need to, once again, familiarize ourselves with the setting here. Matthew tells us at the very beginning of the chapter, Jesus sees the crowds. There's a massive crowd of people from every direction. And so he ascends up a mountain. 
reminiscent of what happened at the beginning of Israel's story in the book of Exodus when Mount Sinai becomes the place where Moses ascends, meets with Yahweh, with the children of Israel at the base of the mountain, and Yahweh's going to come back. He's going he's to give the law. He's going to give the, the Ten Commandments. Well, Jesus is reenacting that, and Matthew wants us to see that connection. So Jesus, as the new Moses, who's going to reform the people of God around himself, he ascends up a mountain with all of these people gathered at the base. But then Matthew says his followers come up to him, his disciples, his apprentices. And then Jesus begins to give this sermon and he directs it to his disciples. So this is very important. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, he's not talking to the human race in general. Otherwise, it really doesn't make much sense. He's talking to his disciples. In other words, those of us in this room or those of us who are tuning in by some other means who have committed ourselves to following the Jesus way of life, we are the ones Jesus is addressing here. Now, notice Jesus doesn't say, you have the salt. He says, you are the salt. Those are two very different lines, aren't they? Between those two sentences, you have the salt, you are the salt, there's an ocean of difference. And I think a lot of times when we think of this teaching, when we think of this passage, we think of it in terms of having salt. We think, you know, we're, we're the Christians, we, we've got all of this salt, we, we've got the salt of the gospel, and we're like salt shakers, and we've got to sprinkle this salt everywhere we go and, and bring salt to every person we meet. That's not that may be true, but that's not really the point Jesus is making here. He's not saying you have the salt. He's saying you are the salt. If we think of our task primarily in terms of giving salt rather than being salt, I think we make a huge mistake. It's not that we have salt. It's that we are salt. In other words, it's not about having the knowledge of Christian truth and the knowledge of the gospel and having, that, having possession of that, it's about living out the Jesus way of life. Amen. So he says, you are the salt. You are the light. Now notice the phrase that comes right after those lines. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. These are global terms. So here you have this small town carpenter this peasant preaching rabbi named Jesus from a tiny little village called Nazareth, barely even a blip on the map. And yet he's dreaming big. He's, he's thinking globally. Jesus has a, a strategy for transforming the world. And how's he going to do it? Through the lives of his followers. So according to the scriptures, the agent of change is not the body politic, but the body of Christ. How does Jesus intend to change the world? Through the community of the baptized who follow the Jesus way. Amen. Now, I think most people in our culture, not all, but most people in our culture, I think, have a sense that our modern life is killing us. We live in a society that is largely built upon the values of consumerism, materialism, individualism, and us versus them tribalism. 
It's our side against their side. How many of you understand that? You know, we live in a society that's largely what our culture is built upon, the values of consumerism, materialism, individualism, and us versus them-ism, and all kinds of other isms. And I think most people just know intuitively, this is killing us. People who don't even follow Jesus, they, they recognize we're destroying our society. <laughs> this is not healthy for us. It's not healthy for our families. It's not healthy for our soul. And people know that, but they don't see an alternative. They don't see a way out of it. But in the midst of all of that, the strategy, the strategy of Christ is for his followers to be the shining alternative what this world needs more than anything else is they need to be able to lift up their eyes and say, look at those people. Look at Village Church. Look at this church. Look at that church. Look at these people who follow Jesus. They're shining. They're distinct. The way they treat one another, the way they love, the way they live. There's something different about these people. There's something beautiful about these people. There's something wonderful and, and mesmer about, mesmerizing about the way they live. And as they watch us live, they, they ought to be wrapped up in the imagination of this is what can be. We don't have to live in these crummy old slums anymore. Let's go up and be a part of that. This is what Jesus means when he says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Now, salt in the ancient world wasn't just simply a condiment that you would sprinkle in your food to make it taste better. I'm sure that they did that. But primarily, the function of salt in the ancient world was a preservative. It would preserve food. This was before modern refrigeration, which is only like 100-something years old. Even the concept of canning our food to preserve it is only like 200 years old. But in the ancient world, if you wanted to preserve food, especially meat, it, it, you would pack it in salt. Let's say that you're an ancient farmer in Palestine where the climate is like really hot or almost year-round, and you slaughter some sheep, you slaughter some livestock, and you want to take the meat and sell it on the marketplace, well, you, you take it. First of all, you got to transport it, which takes time, and it's sitting there in the hot sun. And then uh, once you put it on the market, who knows how long it's going to sit there until somebody actually buys it. And, and, and maybe by the end of the day, they didn't buy it all and you still have some left over and, and now you gotta take it home. Well, what are you gonna do when it's like 100 degrees outside and you wanna preserve your meat? You would take that meat and you would pack it in salt. And, and salt would, would prevent decay. Salt had the function in the ancient world of holding things together. It was, it was the primary preservative. And so the point Jesus is making, and we could just say it like this, he's saying you are the preservative of the earth. Now here's the next big question we need to think about. What is it that we're called to preserve? What is it we're supposed to be preserving? And this is where I think sometimes we go off the rails. A lot of times when preachers or teachers are teaching on this passage and they get to this point in the sermon where we're called to be preservative and they try to explain what is it we're called to preserve, I think this is where sometimes we get off track and the point that is made is that we're called to preserve the moral fiber of our culture. We live in a culture that's in moral decay and we are called to be uh, the moral preservative. We're, we're the moral policemen of our culture, our country. But the best way to interpret the Sermon on the Mount is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. 
Jesus is to be the chief interpreter of the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because he gave it and because he lived it and he embodied it. So here's an even better way to frame the question. What did Jesus preserve? What was Jesus interested in preserving? And this leads me to one of the most astonishing things I find about Jesus. When you read the Gospels, particularly the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and especially Luke, what we find out about Jesus is that Jesus is willing to go everywhere with anybody. Jesus gets invited to eat at the home of a Pharisee, and he goes. Jesus gets invited to a Sadducee's house, and he goes. He gets invited to a prostitute's house, he goes. He gets invited to a tax collector's house, and he goes. And he's willing to meet with and dine with all of these different groups of people who otherwise would have nothing to do with one another. And now, now, now remember, Jesus is a religious leader in his society. He's considered a rabbi. He's a holy man. Crowds follow him, and he heals people. And if you're a tax collector or a prostitute, these were the two most judged groups of people in first century Jewish society. And these people, they would have known, of course, that if Jesus wouldn't approve of everything in our lifestyle, but there was something nevertheless about Jesus that attracted them to him. There was something that sinners found irresistibly attractive about Jesus. And they were compelled and, and they wanted to hang out with him. And they took the daring step of inviting this, Pharise, this, uh, this rabbi, this religious leader, into their homes for dinner. This is something they would have never dreamed of doing with a Pharisee. Pharisees, by and large, were only interested in hanging out with other Pharisees. And if you were a prostitute in that environment you know you're just going to get judged. These men are not interested in preserving my worth. These men are interested in undermining my worth as a human being. And yet here's, here's a man who there's something about him that they gravitate to. And, and here's why I think it was. Jesus' love and acceptance of these groups of people was always communicated more forcefully than whatever opinion he might have had about their lifestyle and their choices. You didn't hear what I said. Let me say it again. Jesus' love and acceptance of people was always communicated more forcefully than whatever opinion he had about their lifestyle and choices. There's this fascinating story in Luke 7 where Jesus gets invited to eat at a, um, a Pharisee's house, a guy named Simon. He gets invited to a Pharisee's house and he goes because Jesus will eat with Pharisees too. Jesus, in fact, will eat with anybody who will welcome him. Simon, the Pharisee, invites Jesus to dine at his house and then he invites all of his other Pharisee buddies and they have a nice meal. They recline at the table and they share a meal and then they do what religious leaders do and they just talk theology. They debated and talked about the Scriptures and God and the prophets then all of a sudden, things take a really bizarre turn. And a woman walks into Simon's house, totally uninvited, a stranger. And Luke tells us that this, he uses the word sinner. He says she was a sinner. But in this case, it was a very, just a polite, tactful way of saying she was a prostitute. And this prostitute walks into Simon's house, and the moment she does, every Pharisee in the room turns their heads and looks at her in disgust. They're thinking, what is this woman doing here? She does not belong 
in this place? Doesn't she know who we are? We don't mix with these types of people. She needs to, somebody needs to get rid of her. And it took all of her courage just to ignore their condescension. And she just walks into the room and she stands in front of Jesus and looks into his eyes. And, and it says she begins to weep. And in her hands, she has this container filled with extremely expensive perfume. It would have taken the average worker like an entire year to pay for this type of perfume. And of course, maybe she was weeping because she was thinking of what she had done to earn the money to pay for it. We don't know. But she takes that perfume and drops to her knees and she pours it out on Jesus' feet. In other words, you could say it this way. She's pouring out her life onto his feet and lets down her hair and scrubs his feet with her hair. It's a really strange thing to do, but really just think of it as a humble, extravagant act of worship. That's what it is. And the whole time this is taking place, Simon the Pharisee is standing watching this in sheer horror. He's scandalized. He's got his arms folded and a sneer on his face. And he's judging this woman. He's thinking, I hope nobody saw her walk into my house. This woman doesn't belong in this room. We're holy men. He's judging her. He's judging Jesus. He's thinking, what kind of rabbi would allow a woman to do something like this? But here's the next question I want us to ponder. Why would she do this? What would inspire this woman, first of all, to even walk into the house? You have to know, she would have to know that walking into a room full of Pharisees, she's really walking into a den of lions. They're going to eat her alive. And yet here's a man who when he looks at her, he sees her as a human being. He doesn't see her as a problem. He doesn't see her as a category. He doesn't see her as, in terms of her sin, I mean, the sin's there, it's obvious. He doesn't, it's not that he doesn't know about it, but when he looks at her, he, he sees her primarily as a human being made in the image of God. And this is why Jesus is able to look at Simon and say, Simon, when I walked into your house, you hardly showed me any hospitality. This woman has not stopped pouring herself out because the one who's been forgiven much is the one who loves much. And he looks at her and says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And, and I think this is one of those things that really characterizes Jesus' entire ministry. What was Jesus interested in preserving? He was interested in preserving the worth and the dignity of human beings made in the image of God. Amen. And everything he does is an expression of that. Every time Jesus heals a crippled man, a leper, a blind person, a deaf person, who everybody else would assume this person is suffering because of sin in their life, Jesus heals the person, and as he heals them, it's him saying, you're worth healing. When Jesus fed the multitudes, it's Jesus saying, you're worth feeding. When Jesus set free people from demonic oppression, he's saying, you're worth setting free. And ultimately, when he sums up his life by spreading out his arms on the hardwood of that cross, and he dies for every person on this planet, it's Jesus saying, you're worth dying for. In other words, every human being on this planet, no matter who they are, no matter what their background, no matter what their past or present, every person on this planet has infinite value and unsurpassable worth. How can I say that? How do we know that? Because Jesus paid an infinite unsurpassable price. And our job as followers of Jesus is to imitate that. As Paul would later write, live in love 
as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. In the midst of a world that's constantly sucking worth off of people and rating people and judging people and evaluating people and ranking, ranking and filing people, followers of Jesus are called to be worth preservers. This is our most fundamental kingdom job is to know that every person I come in contact with, no matter whatever else I observe in their life, has unsurpassable worth in God's eyes because Jesus paid an unsurpassable price. And my job and your job is to reflect that in the way we think about them, the way we speak about them, the way we speak to them, the way we interact with them, the way we treat them. This is fundamental to being a Jesus person. Because the whole world runs on this ranking game, this point system of worth where, you know, it varies from culture to culture. But if in, in, in a given culture, if you have certain things in your life, you get points, you get value. And if you don't have those things in your life, then points are taken away. So, for example, in some circles, if you are attractive, if you're pretty, if you're handsome, well, that's a point in your favor. That's to your advantage. You can use it. But if you're not attractive, that's a point against you. Or in some circles, if you know certain people, if you know the right people, or if you, if you have certain resources that other people don't have, then that's a point in your favor. But if you don't, that's a point against you. In some circles, if you're of a certain ethnicity, that's a point in your favor. If you're of a certain gender, that's a point in your favor. Or in some circles, if you agree with us, and share all of our opinions on all of these issues because, of course, we're the smart ones and we got it all right, then those are points in your favor. But if you don't agree with us on those things, then we're going to cut you off. And that's negative points against you. How many of you know what I'm talking about? I mean, it varies, but, but that's the world we live in and we're a part of that. We rank people sometimes intrinsically to who we are. We can't help it. It's automatic. It's ingrained in us, this whole system of ranking but Jesus takes the whole system and he blows it to pieces and he does it in the way he teaches in the way he lives and ultimately in the way he dies because he dies for everybody I mean there, there I can give you example after example of, of times in Jesus's life and teaching where he takes someone who's at the bottom of the ladder people that everybody discarded that had no value and he highlights the person and holds them up as an example to follow i think famously of the, the parable of the good samaritan you know here you have a jewish man lying half dead on the side of the road and the first two individuals that pass by are the priest and the levite now in first century jewish culture the priest and the levite they got all the points they got all the value Everybody looks up to the priest and the Levite, and yet they pass right by the man. They don't see him as somebody of immeasurable worth, and they don't reflect that to him. They just pass him by. But the third individual is the Samaritan, and everybody hated Samaritans. They're, they're, they got all the negative points against them. They're the enemy. And yet Jesus, in his parable, it's the Samaritan that pauses and is able to see this man as his neighbor. He's able to see the inherent worth of this human being made in God's image, and he reflects that in stopping and pausing and taking time out of his day to help the man and treat him as somebody who deserves to be treated that way. 
This is why Paul would, would write in Galatians 2. He says, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Paul's saying all of these categories that people invest so many points in and so much value in, he says, that's all rendered null and void in Christ. Because when you're getting all of your worth from Jesus Christ, you don't have to get worth from anything else or anybody else. And this was one of the main things that Jesus' ministry was about. Every person in this room, every person watching on the stream or listening on the podcast, I want you to know this. Whether you, whether you feel it or not, whether it's your experience or not, I'm telling you what is true. You have a worth that the world cannot give you. And the world cannot take away from you because it's a worth that comes from your father and it's a worth that was demonstrated concretely on the cross. Therefore, you have unsurpassable worth and that goes for everybody listening and watching and that goes for every person you see and come in contact with. As you drive home from Village Church today and you see people walking down the sidewalk, you ought to know every single one of those people, no matter whatever else is true about their life, that person has infinite value in the eyes of God. And we're to reflect that individually and as a church in everything we do. Whenever our church does an outreach for the homeless, which I'm sure we're going to be doing very shortly, but whenever we have an outreach to the homeless or whenever you as an individual helps a homeless person, I know people in our church, this is just a ministry of theirs and none of you know about it. But whenever you help a person in need, you're saying you're worth helping. Whenever a husband and wife invite a child or adopt a child into their family, they're saying, you're worth welcoming into our household. Whenever you sponsor a child through World Vision or some other ministry, you're saying to this child, this child is worth investing into. Whenever you walk with a friend through an addiction or you walk with a friend through a messy divorce, you're saying, you know what, I'm going to be with you through thick and thin and I'm going to fight with you and I'm going to hang in there with you because you're worth fighting for this is what it is to be salt. We're ascribing worth. In a world where people's worth decays very quickly in the hot sun of judgment, we are to be the salt that preserves, that holds it all together. Now for the salt to function like salt, it first has to come in contact with the meat. This is not rocket science, you know? Let's say you have a nice tri-tip right here. I've just discovered about tri-tips. Nobody else outside of California knows about tri-tips. <laughs> but I got one in the fridge for this afternoon. But let's say you have a beautiful tri-tip right here, and you got a big pile of powerful salt right here. As long as the meat and the salt are separate, the salt's not serving any purpose. It does no good. you got to pack the the meat with salt. The salt has to come in contact. And you see, this is one of the key differences between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees had the kind of holiness that self-righteous people always grab onto. It's the holiness of superiority. It's the holiness that says, we may not be perfect, but we're, at least we're not like these people. And so the holiness of the Pharisees kept people separate, kept them at arm's length so that they didn't have to deal and get their hands dirty and, and get mixed in with people's lives. Pharisaical holiness. Jesus had a totally different kind of holiness, and this is really what holiness is, because Jesus is the only sinless person who ever lived. He's the Holy One of God. But Jesus didn't have the kind of Pharisaical 
holiness that kept himself separate from people lest he get dirty. No, Jesus was willing to mix it up. Jesus was willing to dive into people's lives as invited. He would get involved. He, he recognized, I'm, I'm here to preserve worth, I'm salt, but you can't do that from a distance. You've got to be willing to get mixed in. And we're called to follow the pattern of Jesus. So here's the next question that I want you to ponder, not just now, but even throughout this week. In prayer, I want you to ask God, Lord, where do I find people in my life whose worth is being trampled on? Where might there be people right now in my life who are really hungry for worth and value and they're, they're desperate? And the truth of the matter is all of us crave value and worth it's part of being made in the image of God is we know instinctively that there's something missing without Jesus there's something missing without God involved in our lives and there are people that know it and there are people that don't but I'm willing to bet just about every single one of you you have somebody in your life they know they're sick they know they're hungry they know they're hurting and they're desperate And so ask the Holy Spirit, where are those people in my life? And allow the Holy Spirit to guide you in what way you might be called to preserve worth in that person's life. Here's a place to start, if nowhere else. I'm sure all of us at some point have commutes. You know, this is a commuting city. Or at least you drive from home to church. Obviously, none of of you live here that I know about. Um, So you all have a commute of some sort. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Just... Something to consider is throughout the week on your commute, whether you're commuting back home or back to work or wherever, just say, you know what? On the ride home, on the way back home, I'm not going to listen to the radio. I'm not going to listen to a podcast. I mean, that's fine. But right now on the way back home, I'm going to be on assignment. And as I'm driving, every person I see on the sidewalk, every person I pass, I'm going to bless them. That's all I'm going to do. I'm just going to say, God, bless this person and be with them. Protect them. Reveal yourself to them in a powerful way. No matter who they are. No matter whatever else I see about them. Whatever sin I happen to observe in their life, I'm going to put it aside for a moment. Whatever little judgmental thought comes into my mind, I'm going to set it aside. And I'm just going to be a blessing machine. And every person that I see I'm just going to say under my breath, Lord, bless them and be with them. Draw them to you. And see, even that is a form of ascribing worth. Even that is a form of being salt. You're ascribing worth to a human being. And you're also training yourself. You're training your mind to view people in a different lens. Now here's the final question. And it's the question Jesus asked. He's like, what happens if the salt loses its saltiness? What do you do then? Here's the problem I think he's addressing. You know, obviously the salt has to come in contact with the meat it's preserving. But sometimes in that process, you know, maybe as you're transporting the salt on a cart, sometimes throughout that whole process, other things get mixed in. You know, maybe some common dirt gets mixed in with the salt. And as that happens, it begins to dilute its potency. And it can get to the point where it's so much common dirt has gotten mixed in and it's become diluted so much that the salt loses its potency altogether. And it, now it's, it's no longer even salty. And Jesus says, what do you do with it? Well, you just throw it on the ground just like you would common dirt and you walk on it because the salt is no longer salty. It's not fulfilling its function. 
And this, I think, addresses the most important aspect of this passage. And it's one of the most challenging aspects of faith throughout history, and that is, how do you preserve the distinctiveness of the salt? How do you stay different? Obviously, we need to be in contact with the meat we're preserving, but you have to be careful that it doesn't get diluted, that we don't get our our kingdom call to live a radically self-sacrificial, compassionate life, that we don't get our call from Jesus contaminated and diluted by other things and other agendas. This has always been a challenge for God's people. You know, if you go back all the way to the Old Testament, God's heart for Israel was that Israel would be different, that Israel would be distinct, that they would be set apart and and sort of a model for other nations, a light in a dark world. That was God's heart for Israel. And, And part of that was that Israel was never really supposed to have a king. God was supposed to be their king. And yet they didn't trust that. It felt scary to them. They, they couldn't conceive of that. They wanted to be like other nations. They wanted to have a king like every other nation. They wanted to have a standing army like every other nation. They wanted to fight like other nations. They wanted to conquer other nations. And because God is not a control freak and he doesn't force truth upon them, eventually he relents, he acquiesces. But what ends up happening is now this call of God upon Israel, it starts to get diluted with other things and other agendas. And it gets to a point where Israel ends up becoming just like every other nation in a sense. They, they're, 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 there's nothing distinct about them. The way they approach life and society is virtually no different. We see the same thing happening in the history of the early church. In the first three centuries of Christianity, the early church was beautiful. They really were distinct in the world. They really did love their enemies and follow the teachings of Jesus and willingly give up their lives for Christ. And, and it was wonderful. It, was, it, was, it stood out. And that's why Christianity grew at a rate of 40% per decade in the first 270 years. I mean, it just exploded because people looked at the early Christians and said, wow, look at their lives. Look how glorious But then something happened in the 4th century, and that is Constantine became the Roman emperor, and and he decides for whatever reason that he wants to make Christianity the official uh, religion of the Roman Empire. And then what begins to happen is now all of these Christians, they start getting a taste of power. And what happens almost immediately is now this call to a distinct Calvary-shaped way of life it starts to get diluted and contaminated by other agendas. And in no time, they begin to set out to conquer the world in Jesus' name using weapons and armies rather than the love of Calvary. And it, is just, it, it, it ends up becoming just a religious version of what was already out there. And they lost their saltiness. That's the most fundamental task is we've got to preserve that distinct way of life that Jesus has called us to. We're called to reflect the character of our Father which was definitively revealed on the cross of Jesus Christ. This beautiful, calorie-formed, others-oriented, self-sacrificial way of life. That's what we're called to be. 
And yet it can be very easy sometimes for Christians to allow this radical call of Christ upon our lives to get contaminated by other things. And our saltiness begins to get contaminated by the dirt of materialism. Our saltiness gets contaminated and diluted by the, by the dirt of consumerism. Or our saltiness gets diluted and contaminated by the dirt of partisan politics. And all these agendas dilute it and contaminate it and get mixed in there. And we lose our potency to where even the world says, where's the contrast? What's the difference? Where's the beauty? Where's Calvary being revealed in our lives? Now, I, I and you, we can't fix the entire church here in the West or around the world, but we are part of this church. And let's commit ourselves and orient ourselves, beginning now, if necessary, if we're not already on the journey, let's reorient ourselves and our lives around being the ambassadors that God's called us to be. We're called to look at people differently with a different set of eyes and to see them in light of the cross, in light of what God has done for them. And be willing to mix it up with people's lives. When you care for that elderly widow at the end of your street who nobody else takes time to visit, you're saying in a distinctively kingdom way, you're worth visiting. You're worth spending time with. And even if nobody else sees it, God sees it. That's the meek Calvary Jesus way of life that changes the world. So let's let the Holy Spirit guide us. And once again, I'm inviting you to be a part of our prayer school in February because part of being the kinds of people God's called us to be is embracing healthy practices and disciplines that can allow the Holy Spirit to form us in that way. And so I'm excited. I want to invite you to prayer school February every Wednesday night, 630 in the chapel. And let's become Jesus people together. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.